Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. I'm J.R. Jameson, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. And I'm Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact. And I'm Andrew Sellickson, President of Campus Compact. Exciting. So everybody's back in their respective home communities after our, you know, week ish together in Indianapolis for the national conference, which if you haven't listened to our uh, live recorded episode from that event, it should be above this one in your feed. So check that out. It was a lot of fun to do. Um, How are you guys feeling, you know, back, rested, caught up? Back. Uh, <laughs> None of the other thing. <laughs> uh, somewhat rested, moderately caught up, but uh, still kind of on a high. I felt yeah. like the conference, I mean, I don't know if people would tell me if they thought it was terrible, but I heard a lot of people saying that they had a really good experience, that they felt like they were learning, connecting with people that could help them do the things they're doing and kind of leaving with a, uh, yeah, just some wind in their sails, which for me, that's, if if a conference does all that, uh, that feels really successful. Yeah. Hey, it somehow, well, maybe not somehow, because I think it was intentional. It was just a very positive and uplifting and like there was a really good energy um, I'm not sure else to put it. And it even felt different than our conference two years ago. Uh, and a couple people commented that to me and, um, and I agreed. It just felt like people were really connecting. Mm-hmm. So that was good. I felt great about it as well. I didn't have far to travel because the conference <laughs> was right in my backyard. So going home for me literally meant getting in my car and driving not far to my house. So I didn't have much travel to recover from, but just being with colleagues, learning with colleagues, uh, that does take a ton out of out of a person. And so I think mentally I had to recover, but in a good way. I mean, so reflecting, <laughs> I, I mean that not in a negative manner at all. It's just, you know, having to recover from... The experience. Recover. Uh, you keep using the word recover. Yeah. It's funny because on the conference survey, we ask, did this conference suck the life out of you <laughs> in a good way, in a bad way, other? And I marked good way. I did not mark other or, or bad way. So I don't think I, I've done the evaluation. <laughs> No, it hasn't. I don't think it's been sent out yet. We're, we're, re- we're recording this long before you will get it in your feed. So just to be clear, I don't want Emily to feel like she missed the homework assignment. I can. I hate that feeling. It's the root of all my anxiety. And to make myself clear, I will say it was an excellent conference. So I don't want any of our listeners to think that my response was negative in, in any way. My recovery was not because it was something that was awful and had to be salvaged and I had to salvage my livelihood from it. Not at all. Not by any means. I'm recovering from being on a uh, kind of spiritual high, I guess you could say, from the experience. (laughs) Am I just spiraling deeper and deeper? It's more like a pendulum swinging back and forth, I feel like. You went from like, come to the Campus Compact because you'll need to go into recovery to come to the Campus 
compact if you want to achieve a spiritual high. I don't know. I don't know that either of those things are should should be a way we're selling the conference. I was like, you might learn something. You might, you know, go Meet back home people. with some ideas for doing new colleagues. But you know, Jr. is operating at a different level. Oh, well, yes, all of those things too. <laughs> So we kind of talked about highlights uh, when we recorded at the conference, but with, you know, a few more days reflection, do you have other highlights you're thinking about or things that are kind of on your mind the most? It's a good question. Uh, I will just say quickly that I... um, when we recorded, I talked about the keynote and she was amazing, but I also really loved the panel we had on dialogue and we're working with some of those partners, including, uh, essential partners, which is coming to do a training in Iowa. And I just today saw that they were featured in time magazine, um, for their role in trying to encourage more productive conversations around gun control. So that was really exciting to see, um, you know, one of the partners that was at our conference getting recognition at that level for the role they're trying to play in better conversations. And dialogue is the thing I felt that there was the most energy around at the conference in general. Like that is just clearly on a lot of people's minds and they're proactively trying to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. The dialogue panel was hands down my favorite. Uh, part of the conference, but that was an underlying theme throughout. I mean, even from mm-hmm. from Don's keynote uh, around storytelling and leading to the dialogue panel, leading to the breakout sessions, and even what I like to call the hallway conversations mm-hmm. are some of my favorite parts of conferences. I feel like that's where the real work can happen in many ways because it's where we make connections <laughs> with individuals, right, and begin to have. <laughs> I'm agreeing with you. I'm just yeah. laughing that you said what you like to call hallway conversations because they're literally hallway conversations. So. Listen, I'm I'm copywriting that right now as we speak. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't get past that one. Couldn't, couldn't let that slide. But there were great hallway conversations <laughs> to be had. Literally in the hallway. Around dialogue. And we were literally dialoguing too. So. <laughs> Dialogue about dialogue is my favorite kind of dialogue. I feel like there's a way that the sort of that theme as it's emerged in our work, in the work of lots of our partners and the kinds of um, things we're hearing from campuses about the support they want is this. Okay. Here's my, my sort of overtime reflection on this, that, you know, maybe campus compact started with a hypothesis that, the way you strengthen communities in our democracy is by encouraging more people to do service to others. And I think all of us agree that people willing to support others uh, through things and in need and whatever is part of what you want out of a strong community. But I think, you know, we have grown a recognition over time that strong communities are communities where, where people actually make common cause together to pursue the kinds of communities they want. And that requires understanding each other and listening to each other in ways that service doesn't necessarily. And so, you know, to create that larger community, we we just don't have the tools yet. And in fact, we've seen that uh, we are fractured in ways that make it really hard. So for me, it makes a lot of sense that we'd be focusing on this because it Mm -hmm. feels like taking on the challenge that is really before us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, that stood out amongst um, a lot of other great conversation about uh, institutional planning um, through, you know, things like civic action plans, um, real wide range of people like 
I definitely had good conversations with some people who haven't really done anything with Campus Compact before and people, you know, who have been involved in our work for decades. So, and everyone seemed to be able to find something for them. So it was exciting. Yeah. And I would say coming out of that, that, you know, we had the, the inside baseball, as you guys know, uh, many of us stuck around for a meeting of Campus Compact staff who were at the conference uh, on JR's host campus and the IUPUI campus. And, you know, I think just I was excited by the the shared interest in in continuing to build more and more ways mm-hmm. for institutions to connect and kind of be supported in their work through the Campus Compact Network. I sense there's, again, a lot of demand for that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also a lot of interest among all the people who are Campus Compact people across the country in helping to make that happen. Absolutely. So should we turn to our interview? We're kind of taking um, the topic in a different direction for our next couple of episodes. So just a preview, we're going to have a couple conversations related to community engagement in kind of health care, health education settings. And, um, and then JR will be attending the Global Service Learning Conference uh, coming up, and we'll have another um, live conference recording uh, to discuss from some wonderful practitioners who will be at, and, and researchers who will be at that event. So some exciting things coming up, and we're going to kind of kick off the health focus with an interview I did along with um, Cindy Nichols, the uh, Associate Director at Minnesota Campus Compact. We interviewed Katie Clark. She's a faculty member at Augsburg College in the Twin Cities, and her role is with the Augsburg Central Health Commons, um, which it's been around since 1992, but has also changed a lot over time. And it's really, uh, it's a drop-in center, but they describe it in a couple of ways that I think are unique and interesting. So they provide services um, and train future nurses through through the center, but they strive for it to be both um, nursing-led and really driven by social justice and transcultural uh, principles. So they've done a lot of interesting things to really make sure they were responding to the community and creating a different space. So um, that's a lot of what we talked about with Katie, and I thought that was very interesting. And then they've also expanded to an additional center um, in Cedar Riverside, uh, where they've even tried some new and different things, again, just to really meet people where they are and create um, a really a healthcare experience that decenters the practitioner as the expert and lets people take the lead in their own healthcare in ways that I think is really interesting. And so Katie gave us some good insight into what that looks like there and how they involve students, um, staff, faculty, and community members in that. So let's go right to that interview. So one of the questions I had for you, Katie, is um, how the Cedar Riverside Health Commons and Central Health Commons are driven by the community and residents, um, and how does that impact what the Health Commons offer? How does that impact how you do your work? Sure, it's a really good question. Um, I would say that in the beginning, it was not clear that that was what was going to be driven driving our work because when we first started at Central, I think that there was this emphasis, you know, that was 26 years ago around what social justice was and what it meant to practice from a place using social justice. And so I think the original Health Commons was really started thinking 
well, we're going to go and start this like health center in this like day shelter where they're distributing free clothes in a church. And then we're going to bring in students and have a certain service learning project and see what happens. And I think within the first year, the, um, person who was the chair of the department at the time and started the health commons had this moment of clarity thinking this is really about mutual benefit and it's really about understanding a population that is hidden and understanding a population that often is misunderstood so when you work in healthcare you often see individuals who are living in poverty come through our ERs or <clears throat> in our systems in different manners, and they might come across as aggressive or non-compliant, and we don't understand what's happening with them, and we often label them with these behaviors or mental illnesses instead of trying to understand their personal story. And so I think it was a way for having students to understand people who are often hidden and often don't want to tell people they feel will judge them their story. So it's really thinking about unpacking so many biases that people, you know, develop over time and all of that. So the shift kind of happened and it became more about de-emphasizing the expert model and what does that mean? And so everything started to develop around hospitality and how do you have radical hospitality and how has nursing gotten so far away from thinking about how you make connections with people um, because we get so many skills that are technocratic and policy driven that we can't often think about simple human moments where you're able to understand one another. And so a whole model kind of developed throughout the last 26 years around what this means. So really, you know, being in the moment, attending to people's struggles, giving them choice, um, knowing there's always going to be more to the story that we don't know, but we're there in the moment and listening to the wisdom of the person who is living in the margins in some capacity. And we're there to, to witness it instead of to minimize it. And so I think it's been a thing at Central that has been key to who we are. So um, on this coming April, um, actually, we're in a trailer this year because the building we are in is being remodeled. And so part of what I wanted to do this year was pause and say, okay, so are we doing what we say we're doing? And if I were to introduce research in its traditional sense in this setting, it would, you know, hurt the relationships that we have and minimize people's um, perspectives at times. So what we've done instead is we've tried to do oral histories this year and kind of capture like not only who's coming and why and what we could do better, but who is foundational in its beginnings and making sure we stay true to that but then also asking people what they want next. So then in April, there's a group called Street Voices of Change that meets at a church nearby. And um, there's about 60 to 80 homeless individuals who meet, or they might be marginally housed as well. They meet and it's a space just for them to share breakfast. And then they meet and talk about issues they care about. And so I was asked 
to, or I asked the group if I could come and talk to them about what they want in the new space. And so on, in April, I'm going to go with 12 students and we're going to spread ourselves out to different tables and take notes and ask people, you know, what's going well at the health commons? What could we do better? And, and then what, what are we not asking that you would hope to add to and kind of hopefully getting some more insight onto what this space um, means and what it should really represent as well as I would say at the health commons at central, we don't have a lot of security and we don't have some entrance system where people scan and tell us their name. And so it really resides on our ability to make everybody have ownership in the space. And that means we have to make everyone accountable in court as well as ourselves. Right. So I can't give 15 diapers to one mom and tell the other mom, I don't have any, you know, just simple things like being fair and equitable and, also giving choice though too like do you want these socks or these socks um so at cedar riverside what's interesting about that site is so in 2009 there was a participatory action research study done in the neighborhood with elderly somali women and what what kind of spurred this research was that women who first came to this country or women who came Um, to this country who are from Somalia had actually a better health status than most women the same age that were American here. And then within five years, their health rapidly deteriorated. And, but they were connected to services with their um, migration status and all that, but there seemed to be this huge disconnect. So they did focus groups in the neighborhood asking elderly Somali women, like, what is going on here? And the research came about with many things, but a lot of it was really around discordant health beliefs. So you go to the doctor here and they don't know your family. They don't ask about if you've used, if you've prayed or read the Quran based on your ailments or use black seed or any of those things, as well as, you know, um, having providers of different sex was an issue, um, feeling judged as well as like, um, people felt like, if they were five minutes late, they would get canceled, but the doctor could be like a half an hour late. So how did that add up? And then you have the whole role of the interpreter in there. So, I mean, it was just multi-layered for people feeling barriers um, to connecting to primary care and getting their health needs met. And so I think that people, you know, kind of identify these issues and, what they really wanted as an outcome from that was to have a place in the neighborhood they could go to free of charge that had no time constraints that there was healthcare providers there they could ask questions to. So the um, Sara Noor was one of the researchers and she came and asked if uh, those nurses, uh, those of us at Augsburg would meet for coffee and Dr. Osman joined us as well from the East Africa Health Project. And so we started planning and finding space and seeing what this could look like. And so we opened in 2011 and it was really an interesting thing to stay in this mindset of 
not being the expert and only responding to needs as they're expressed because we literally sat in this space connected to the women's uh, a women's side of a mosque in the neighborhood we would sit there for uh, twice a week for four hours. And like the first three months, like nobody really came, <laughs> even though the community had asked for it. So we weren't really sure, but we knew if we wanted to do this in an authentic way, we had to stay in it and be consistent. And so over time, people started coming, they started asking for different things. And now it's been quite amazing because it's transformed into this place where community has ownership in so many unique ways. So for example, we hired bilingual community liaisons, we call them. There are translators, but translators and interpreter have very negative connotations in the neighborhood. So we chose not to use those titles. Plus some of the, we call them BCLs, had very little English skills. So it was very interesting at the beginning because I really often wasn't totally sure what was happening, but we knew that we needed people from the neighborhood to be involved because that's what this was truly supposed to represent. So now those BCLs, oh my gosh, they run the whole thing. They're the ones getting people involved. They're helping us with all of the programming and they, they're all wanting to go back to school and be first community health outreach workers and then nurses. I mean, it's just been amazing to see how it's transformed but yeah so now we're open that's exciting yeah so now we're open like five to six days a week and have all these different programming and yeah it's really been beautiful what's a bcl again can you say that a bilingual community liaison oh okay fantastic um can you go back to you mentioned briefly radical hospitality and i saw that on your website, your website also, and just thought that was really interesting. I don't know if that's a term I've seen associated with community engagement. I wanted to better understand your what that means to you. Sure. So I would say radical hospitality really means a lot, but I think for students, it's helpful to think about being truly present. And radical hospitality has some um, grounding in nursing theory which I know is not that exciting to talk about. So I'll spare you all the details. But um, but really it's thinking about, you know, not thinking about what you're going to do next, not checking your phone while you're offering somebody coffee. You know, so really how can you be in that moment, ask eye contact or ask questions and listen to what they have to say and reflect on it while you're having a conversation. So radical hospitality looks different in every community. So, you know, in Cedar Riverside, it would be offering Somali tea and a community space to gather. Um, At Central, it would be coffee and letting people hang out and not feel like they have to leave if they don't need if they don't have anything they truly need to ask for. Fantastic. That's really interesting. And another piece in that is not asking people's personal information. I mean, you can say, hi, my name's Katie, what's your name? And that's fine. And a lot of times, especially at Central, you get street names, which is always interesting. Um, But not making people like sign in or show their ID or any of those things. Oh, wow. So you have talked about serving several different cultures. And I know that a part of what you're trying to achieve is preparing nurses who are ready to serve people of different cultures. What do you do with the students as a teacher 
to help them prepare for and reflect on those experiences? That's a great question. Um, I think that that is the million dollar question <laughs> because you can, you can have lots of different experiences, but if you're not prepped and you don't debrief, it can actually be miseducation mm-hmm. and reinforce stereotypes. So a lot of what we do is um, we embed it in different courses intentionally. Um, and so for example, like when at Central, when people come there, they're required to participate in a voice thread, which kind of goes over some of the different ways of knowing, if you will. So you have empirical knowledge on there and you have ethical dilemmas and and um, also kind of going over the model and the culture and how it's important to think when you're in the space about identifying strengths and not getting too focused on asking those therapeutic questions. I think it's really easy as nurses, especially when I have, you know, nurses who've been, they're getting their doctorate. They've been nurses for 30 years. And there is a thing to say, like, we actually have like a nursing voice, which often sounds like a parent voice. And so if you use that, when you're talking to somebody, you got to think about that because it serves as a barrier. And, and why are we, why are we talking like that to begin with? So just thinking about language in general. So kind of thinking all those things through. And then when they come to either space to have an orientation um, with a faculty, having faculty there is key in my opinion. Um, Not that a staff person couldn't do it, but as a nurse, you're able to really connect so many things to how this is nursing because if you don't intentionally do that, students can really feel like this is very different than my everyday practice, so I don't understand how this completely connects. Um, But as a faculty member, it's your job to do that, and it's your job to also model what, you know, it looks like as far as being engaged and thinking about not only individual agency, but collective agency. And then also um, afterwards we debrief and talk about different things. And usually students either have to come back again or write a paper about it. Um, So I think there's many things about it that we try to prep students on, but it does have to be very intentional. Yeah, it sounds like you've thought about it a lot and that the voice thing is really interesting because I think that applies outside of nursing. I think lots of people adopt a different voice um, when they're working with someone they think is in need. And mm-hmm. well, and, <laughs> and so, for example, I just spent some time, um, I'm teaching a doctorate course that's an immersion right now. And we went to a place in the neighborhood um, that is working with women. Everyone who works there has been um, for lack of a better term, prostituted. So they all have been in the life. And so we were there and some of the women were sharing some of their stories and they were talking about just this. Like, you know, um, when she was in the life, she went to the doctor a ton because her womenly parts were her life source. And so being worried about disease and things like that was the thing that... she panicked about. And so she went to the doctor quite frequently, but would never go back to the same doctor because she felt so judged. And it was finally a nurse practitioner who was able to be like, 
look at those heels you have on. Those are awesome. Where did you get those? And like making a connection outside of that. And then finally, after she went back a couple times being like, you know, what's going on here? I, I can't help you unless you're honest with me and I'm not going to try to fix you. I just want to make sure I can take care of your healthcare needs and I will not try to fix the situation, but I'm just here for you as a provider. And it was like this whole shift in her happened. And I think for doctorate level students to hear that was really important. Yeah. Katie, I know that um, a lot of people are interested in the work that you do and with that, especially in higher education, comes an interest in studying the health commons. And I was wondering if you could talk about how you engage with those requests or people's interest in doing research on your work. Sure. Well, I would say I always, I'm a person who always tries to say yes first. I think it drives people crazy because I should just say no sometimes, but I feel like if somebody's interested in it, especially as a researcher, it's always interesting to just invite someone into the space to see what it is and what it looks like, not as a researcher, but just as whether it's a volunteer or a professional hanging out, whatever you might want to call it. Um, but it's also been something that we've had to stay really solid in as far as not having traditional research there, because I would say that people, so for example, in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood, there's three academic institutions there. And when I first started there, here I am, a white woman, overly educated, and in the neighborhood trying to do something. And so people automatically thought that I'm there as a researcher and I'm going to get money for what I'm doing. And the people in the neighborhood expressed, especially as we started and having, you know, more people to kind of tell us what they were hoping for, but some of their experiences as well is there's a lot of students and faculty that come in and do their research. They give people their stipends and then they leave and nobody sees anything because of the information they told. And we're talking about people who lived in refugee camps for 12 years after fleeing home um, and then are in a new place and sharing these traumas that they often don't share. And, and it's very um, unsettling and disruptive to their life to have to go back to those moments and share them and then to have nothing come about was really not what they were hoping for and so people really didn't trust me so I the first thing I learned how to say was Gabar Adan I'm a white chick let's just get it out there it means I'm a white girl in Somali and people would laugh and then I'd have to go through the whole thing of I'm not here to make money we're just here in response to like what people said can I check your blood pressure? And it took a long time for people to trust me and to trust Augsburg, um, that we were there for the right reasons. But I would say that that's been something that's been um, established and, but also something we have to protect. So we do have faculty who do want to come and do research and, and I get its importance, but in these rare moments, research doesn't fit and it would disrupt the level of trust 
for sure. And then you have at Central, you have a whole group of people who, I mean, let's be honest, there's racial disparities in who who is living on the streets in our state, at least, and I'm sure in other states as well. And really, it's not that long ago that people had some horrific experiences with research that we've all heard about, um, as well as, I mean, even sterilization. I mean, so, so there's so many complexities and issues and, and people are oral and their family, their grandparents went through this because of research and whatnot. So you just have to like be very careful with it. I mean, you have people who go into the healthcare system who are worried that if they're going to be in um, a death situation that they're not going to be cared for because they don't have money and everyone will just use their body for medical research. Like whether it's, I mean, obviously that's not a true statement as somebody who's worked in the healthcare system, but it's a fear. And so how do you get past that? Plus I think the whole impact of who's mentally ill Mm -hmm. and you can't always easily identify that. And a lot of people in the homeless community have not been diagnosed, but you know, it's there. And so what's the implications of researching in those situations? I just hear such attention to trust and history in what you're saying. And I think that's very important. And I don't know if it's enough a part of any of the conversations we have about healthcare or community engagement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I even see it. So yeah, I just got done teaching this immersion and um, it's two eight hour days and we, it's really um, with doctorate level students talking about how the gap between the rich and the poor is really impacting all of our health and not just in this country, but in other countries. And then in the same instance, we add some skill that we're teaching the um, doctorate students as far as either civic skills or trans advanced, advanced transcultural nursing skills to think about um, how do you take actions on some of these things that people really get fired up about. But even in those moments, you have to have trust and not just trust with places that you go and hear from, but your own students. Um, and if students don't trust each other, they're not going to be open and in the moment either. Right. Are there um, ways that you want to share how you think about this citizen nurse idea um, or what, you know, what you hope your students will walk away from their training prepared to do, not just in their, in their work, but in their lives? Sure. I would say that, well, there's many things and our, our um, program is focused on transcultural nursing, which, you know, has obviously uh, grounding in theory, but, um, you know, it's thinking about caring for marginalized populations here and abroad and thinking about all the different aspects of health and culture that there are, um, and really has grounding in anthropology. So I think it gives us a lot of foundational ability to encourage students to think about their role in a broader context than just what, what am I as, uh, as a nurse when I'm in the hospital or, you know, in a, in a primary clinic, it's really thinking about what do students 
it's it's kind of like goes back to and this is going to be an academic term but like epistemological humility so you don't know what you don't know and if you don't know something you're not going to be aware of it so until you know something you can't name it and then you can't change it if you can't name it so how do you get students to the place where they can actually be aware something actually exists that needs to be changed and so over the you know however many years now since 2011 we've really been looking at curricular redesign and adding some context around what the citizen nurse is and so i think it's morphed and changed but it's really getting students to think about you know de-emphasizing that expert model and connecting to people in our communities as co-creators instead of like just somebody that will help me do this work and I'm the lead, but we're going to co-create this. And people have wisdom and we call it matis that we'll never be able to understand, but really needs to be a part of the discussion if it's going to be systemic and sustainable change. And really thinking about we have to do work that has public meaning. So it's not just meaningful in our care settings, but meaningful to the world around us. And then thinking about relationships that are going to help us kind of think about connecting and partnering, but also thinking about what that means for social justice as our foundational framework. And so I think it gets complex, but I think the, we've tried to weave some of the language and skills throughout our program to helpfully help students realize different things they can do. Because I think before we really started thinking about civic skills, we had a lot of students, including I was a student in the program years ago, and you get fired up. You know, I, I worked with homeless youth for most of my master's program, and you and you learn all these things, and you want to do something but then you don't really have the tools to think about what that could be and so you kind of walk away from it but if we can give students a few things they can actually do when they're done to think about well what what could happen and especially in these huge huge healthcare systems that we're in and i think a big thing we try to promote too is not just that how do people access healthcare it's about how do people access health. So if you want to talk about accessing healthcare, okay, fine, you know, do your research on if you have a primary provider, I get that that's important. But that doesn't mean that somebody's going to have health because health looks different for each person. So how do we get away from just thinking about health equaling healthcare and really thinking about health being somebody's individual ability to survive and have means to happiness? You, um, have brought up a few times sort of rejecting the, the expert role of the healthcare provider. And I wonder if there's ever a tension in um, students you're working with who are perhaps in school because they want to help people, but also because they're seeking um, stability for themselves and their families. They're, they're seeking a professional career that can be meaningful for their own life outcomes and how we tie expertise to that and so what does it um what does it mean to to ask um someone for whom hire maybe they're a first generation college student whatever it is that you know expertise for them is is something hard won to then ask them to set that aside does that make sense so they're very proud of being the expert almost and they don't want to 
disconnect with that? Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, and just knowing that in our broader cultural conversations, um, being an expert is uh, in some ways a cloak of safety and security. You know, it's uh, equated with a lot of what higher education might be offering people, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that's part of the job as a faculty member is to figure out where students are at, but do it in a way that's strategic. So for example, before this immersion, um, I had, again, some different voice threads, but also some pretty compelling documentaries such as like Poverty Inc. So just thinking about the role in um, how financial aid abroad has really not had great outcomes and and made people dependent on a system that doesn't work and also has destroyed local economies, whether it's around farming or clothing initiatives and thinking about when we want to help and when we want to fix somebody, does that actually work? And do we need to rethink what that that means? And so, yes, students have all sorts of raw reactions and tensions and there's tensions in the classroom. I mean, we went to the jail this immersion and some things really came out um, around people's people's stories that were eye-opening as far as um, some of the people who are working in the prison system and some of the things and and biases they had came out and so to see students beyond all ends of the spectrum on how they process what was said creates a lot of tension in the classroom. So you have to, that's where immersions get hard because you have to be in the moment and be able to have all students be able to say how they feel, but then kind of bring it back to what is the topic of the course. And so, yeah, there, the expert model thing is, is probably the hardest for the doctorate level students, I'll be honest, because most of them have been nurse practitioners or leaders for a long time. And then, and I'm a younger teacher too, you know, so sometimes that can be a beginning barrier, which usually is fine once we start going. But yeah, I mean, all sorts of things come up and you can't really predict what it's going to be. So for sure, tensions come about. Thanks. Yeah, that makes sense. So Katie, just to kind of close it out on, you mentioned that you guys are in a process of thinking about the future, building for the future. Mm-hmm. What is what is a hope or vision you have for the future of the work you're doing and, you know, civic and community engagement and nursing in general? That's a great question. Um, Actually, in the oral histories that I've been doing recently, I've been asking um, retired faculty, like, what would the health commons look like in 20 years? And so it's interesting. Almost every person who, whether they're a community member, and I've asked them the question, a volunteer or a retired faculty, almost everybody has said for the central location, they hope that we have more days. Mm that we're open because we're only open two days a week. Um, For me, what I would personally hope is I'm finding that there's so much about entering a space for people who are really mentally ill um, and so much anxiety. And we've been actually 
a lot of our regulars who are people that often would only really feel safe coming into the restoration center where we're housed at the health commons. Um, they're staying outside. They're sleeping outside. One men, one gentleman in particular, he sleeps in a nearby hotel um, parking lot. And so he hasn't been eating and he hasn't really, he doesn't trust a lot of the outreach workers. And so, you know, uh, he's, he's easily targeted for many different things, but so anyhow, some of the outreach workers knew that we've had a relationship with him and that he won't come into the trailer because it's a very confined space. So started asking us to go out and see him. So we go out and we bring this gentleman um, food and socks and some other simple elements, but more just check in with him and see how he's doing. And so for me, I feel like I would love to see us have an outreach arm. And I feel like we're already... a uh, kind of a part of outreach in a way, but a more intentional outreach. So what does it mean to go out with outreach teams to different camps and be a nurse in that setting and letting students really know more of what that's about. But that would mean students who are really dedicated to being um, really engaged at the health commons over a, con- a continual of time. It would mm-hmm. just be a one or two-time experience. So that was a really long answer, but... Oh, that's fantastic though. And so I would love to have more time there and less time teaching, maybe balance it. But, you know, we all know faculty loads and that's not realistic. And so anyhow, and then I think at Cedar Riverside, our goal would to be having it taken over by the whole community. And we're not even, we're just part of it when they ask us to be, but they're not dependent on us to be there. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Katie, for being willing to give us some of your time and insights this morning. You're doing fantastic work and it's been really interesting. Well, thank you. And I am very happy to have the opportunity to kind of share some of the work that the department's doing because I think it's unique. And I think it's timely, though, too, and what's all happening in our current world and how we think about making citizens of place, not just people who are full of wonderful knowledge to be healthcare providers, but really can be productive members of our society in some capacity. Okay, so welcome back, everybody. So I'm interested in what you guys thought about that. I really enjoyed talking to Katie. It's clear she's very passionate about what she does and what they're trying to achieve through the health commons, um, that they're thinking about things and, and trying to work really intentionally. And I think the thing that for me was a new concept or at least way of describing it most was um, this idea of radical hospitality, just really thinking about how you meet someone where they are, make sure they're going to be immediately comfortable. And when I think of my healthcare experiences, that is, you know, I've had very privileged healthcare experiences and yet that is still not what comes to mind. You know, it's very, I think even for someone without mental health issues and extreme poverty and that kind of thing, it's an intimidating environment in most cases. So to think about how they're approaching that and how they're trying to get these student nurses who are, for good reason, very proud of their expertise to kind of take that out of the center. I, I just found it really fascinating, and um, I don't know, I think it's an interesting model that could translate into a lot of areas. JR, what did you think? 
I loved the idea of radical hospitality and not allowing ourselves to always be the expert, but allowing those we work with to be the experts about themselves. It reminded me, I was involved with a group a few years back called Circles, which was born out of Missouri, but it's a program that's across the country. And it's working with people in, in poverty. Uh, and it's connecting across class divides. And we had rules that were similar to radical hospitality where we couldn't use last names. We couldn't talk about our professions or what we did. We were, if we had to dress up for our day jobs, we were encouraged to change clothes before we came to the meetings to put on jeans and a t-shirt. And it really equalized the conversation in so many ways. There are, there are small things that we do in our mm -hmm. daily lives as professionals that sometimes we don't even think about. As simple as the way we dress for our job that can create a divide when we're working in and with communities. And I think that's so important for us in this work in higher education to think about because there are expectations, especially for community engagement professionals, depending on where they fall in the house of their university, on what they're expected to wear to work and such. And so, I mean, I think we do have to have a serious conversation around radical hospitality and how that relates to our own professions and our work in and with communities. Yeah, that's so interesting. That The way you just put that makes me think of some of my work on campaigns. We kept um, some t-shirts and other clothes in the back because we would have these young volunteers come from Chicago or other places and, you know, they'd be in button downs or leather jackets or these different things where we were like, you are not going to go knock on Iowan's doors in that outfit. <laughs> like, you know, throw a t-shirt and a hat on them. Just be like, you've got to be approachable. You've got to, you know, at least seem like you are someone that they can relate to. So that's interesting how much appearance can affect that. I So it's interesting. I, I in When I was working on campuses and often meeting with people in communities, at neighborhood centers, at churches or whatever, thought a lot about this issue. And one of the things, I mean, so there's obviously things to balance and very contextually specific questions. For me, I never wanted it to seem to people like I was uh, dressing down for them, like I was being inauthentic or sort of implying. So because they knew in general how I would dress for my job at Rutgers or at mm -hmm. Princeton, I didn't want them to think, oh, he thinks he should be some other way for us. And so, you know, I was pretty careful just to dress the way I dress and kind of just be like, this is who I am. And hopefully I seem like a person who you can work with and you can trust, et cetera. But I do think, again, this depends a ton on the context and what's going to create barriers or what's going to open up opportunities for engagement. So, no, I think those are really interesting issues. I was, I mean, another kind of part of the conversation that really interested me was the, the sort of dimension of this that is connected to the broader idea that sometimes people call civic professionalism, mm -hmm. the idea of how we, um, both in terms of preparing uh, students who are on their road to professional careers or uh, how we work with professional communities kind of integrate the idea of the public role and the, the public values that ought to animate the work within professions. And, you know, I was interested that when asked about that, and I think I'm remembering this correctly, that Katie talked about kind of, you know, the instruction in anthropology, for example, that goes into preparing these nurses that, and, and so for me, it was really interesting to think about the liberal arts more broadly. And, right, of course, the liberal arts have their origin as being 
the, the fields necessary for a free person to have studied. That's like literally what the Latin means. And free people are essentially citizens. And so the idea that to the civic dimension of our professional roles is informed by kind of broad and deep study of cultures, of literature, of history, like that, that made sense to me that she reached for that when she was asked about that. And I just think it's a really interesting question for us to try to encourage those in professional schools and, and other places to really be asking not just about sort of the ethical, uh, sort of, you know, enacting these roles in ethical ways, but enacting them in ways that are specifically connected to citizenship and public values and the kinds of goods, uh, you know, that can come out of that work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's that's really important and interesting, and she clearly had given a lot of thought to that. I think kind of relatedly, um, I, it was very interesting, especially when they started the new clinic at, or whatever, you know, it wasn't initially a clinic, but when they started going to Cedar Riverside and talked about how they had to, they were just there for months and no one came to take advantage of their services. I think there's so much, um, you know, especially in dominant white culture, there's so much uh, impatience that the idea that you might have to, you know, I could see most places where they go a couple times and then just determine nobody was interested in the service because of that, not really recognizing how long you have to be there to establish trust and just needing to stick it out and let people lead, which might move on a very different timeline than you had in mind. Um, I don't know that a lot of, you know, community engaged courses or things like that are really set up to allow for that kind of flexibility. And so it was pretty amazing really that they did wait that out and the difference they saw when they did. And I think that's really important to remember. Mm-hmm. I would say it's not only, so as you said, the academic calendar and those kinds of um, pressures make that difficult so often do the expectations of funders. Yeah. So I think that's another thing, you know, that kind of finding partners who share values and are willing to, as you were saying, kind of embrace the pace that is appropriate rather than some externally imposed pace. Um, And also, I mean, I know that as you were saying, like, it's very easy just to draw quick conclusions from who shows up and who doesn't. And they're often just wrong, Yeah, you know, and sometimes it's just like, we didn't understand the place well enough. So we didn't know how to communicate very well about what was available or, or sometimes it's trust, but there's all sorts of things. And, you know, the, the sense that you have to get something done in a very short time frame interferes with really investigating those questions and identifying what might be going on. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of her work reminded me too of critical service learning. It fits so well with that lens and the fact that this can't really be done in a semester. And this is really looking at long-term impact. And so I appreciated the connection around that. She didn't explicitly say that she was using a critical service learning model with this, but there are so many undertones to that. Uh, I, I just think that's a good connection, another lens to look at this work through. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Should we turn to our final segment? So we're not, uh, I don't know how to describe what we're going to do today because it's not pop culture, certainly. And uh, it's not a resource necessarily, but we're recording this on the um, 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. And we both just, we all just had some kind of different reflections 
on that. And, and JR, I think you were going to kick that off. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about Bobby Kennedy. And the reason why is because on this date 50 years ago when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, Bobby Kennedy was on the campaign trail. And he stopped off at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana that afternoon to give a campaign speech. And while he was on his way from Muncie, Indiana to Indianapolis to give another campaign speech, he learned of uh, Dr. King's assassination. And so he scrolled out a few notes on a napkin that he then delivered at a park here in Indianapolis. When he delivered that speech, it was making the citizens of Indianapolis who attended his rally, it was the first time they had learned of Dr. King's assassination. Um, there were audible gasps if you go back and you listen to that recording. People were wailing. People um, were obviously distraught and upset to hear this news. Uh, and he read a little bit from that napkin, and then he just spoke from the heart to them. What's also known about that evening is that Indianapolis was one of the only major cities in the country to not have riots that evening. And it's often um, people point to the speech that he gave to say that his words helped people uh, in that moment. Uh, and, and I'm not going to read the whole speech to you, but there was one little small part of that speech that really connects to me and makes me think, wow, we're still here 50 years later. Um, and what he said on that napkin was, what we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence or lawlessness, but love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or they be black. And that speaks to me because, again, when we think about where we are in our country 50 years later, we have had many successes toward justice, but we're also finding ourselves reverting back in many ways. But if we look at the lives of Dr. King and the life of, life of Bobby Kennedy and focus toward justice, it just reminds me that if we stay in that path, we can make long-term progressive change. We just have to remember that we have to be... Um, Peaceful, and I'm not saying that protests are wrong in, in any ways. Um, protest and peacefulness can't be mutually exclusive. The other thing that I like, and I haven't had a chance to get over there today, but there's a Martin Luther King Park now here in Indianapolis, and there's it's called the Landmark for Peace Memorial that depicts a half image of Bobby Kennedy and a half image of MLK reaching out toward one another. And that sculpture represents reconciliation and the striving for peace. And so when I think about today and I think about the legacy of Dr. King, I think about Bobby Kennedy, that's where I am um, thinking about the peace and the peace peacefulness uh, of their lives and what they really hoped for. Yeah, that, I mean, for, it's a, for me, <clears throat> so I was born, I think, essentially 13 days before King's assassination. And so for me, um, you know, this anniversary connects to hearing from a very early age. My mother kind of all, always for her, the story was about kind of holding this little baby in her arms and uh, hearing the news of this terrible catastrophe. And then having it magnified just a few months later uh, with the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and a sense that we were spiraling downward. And I was, um, you know, just the point, Jerry, you were just making about 
this sort of strange combination of progress and regress and whatever. I, I was last uh, October, I was down in Birmingham, Alabama for a conference and I went to the Civil Rights Museum uh, that also commemorates the bombing of the church in Birmingham in 1963, I want to say. Suddenly, I, I should know the year, but and um, and the murder of the young children who were killed in that bombing. And part of what was so strange to me, and I feel like there's something about the moment we're in that it leads us to need to say things that we have come to think of as sounding cliched. <laughs> but, you know, it's like the idea that there are that there are people in the country who want to go back who and, and that really is a feeling that I've had that you know this isn't just about yeah and the idea that we can't see our way clear to saying yes there are people of all as as uh, as Bobby Kennedy said in the passage you quoted of all colors of all backgrounds who have been excluded from opportunity who have not seen real justice in the way uh, our society has been organized and, and yeah. you know, whatever, but, but that it, we revert to the need to divide uh, and diminish and kind of fan hatred that it is, it's obvious, like it's an obvious thing to say, but it's completely baffling and so dispiriting. And I am, again, you know, seeing the students in Parkland, I mean, from Parkland and from other communities coming together in Washington a couple of weeks ago. Again, reasonable people can have all sorts of views about gun re- regulation, but to me, seeing students from such different backgrounds saying, there are things we care about and we are going to work together to find a way to share a stage and to share our voices and to share our strength. That was a pretty powerful thing from my perspective, um, yeah, that I've just been reflecting on in the context of this anniversary. Yeah, I think for me, um, reflecting a little bit today, I am trying to ground myself in reality too. Um, One of the most amazing experiences I had with MLK Day was when I lived in San Antonio as an AmeriCorps Vista. And San Antonio has the largest or one of the largest marches in the country. And it was really incredible. And that was kind of a time in my life where I, you know, like I could... I kind of saw things as more simple than they are. And it seemed like a lot of progress had been made and people were coming together. And um, I think I've learned a lot more about MLK's legacy and also the reality of the situation in our country. And today, just this morning, I had an interview on NPR about Memphis. So he was in Memphis for a sanitation workers strike. And so they were kind of looking at, well, you know, are things better? Um, And, you know, in a lot of ways, they just aren't. Uh, Memphis is a majority black city, and yet 88% of the um, senior level managers are white people. And 73% of the laborers are black. So um, while we've done some things, there's just a lot we haven't done. And I'm, I'm glad that it seems like we're moving past feeling like it's done and we are in a better place and kind of confronting some of that. And I think we have to use, you know, things like MLK Day and this anniversary to really um, actually grapple with some of that stuff instead of just celebrating him as this kind of almost fictional character like it seems like sometimes. I heard that interview this morning too as well it was fantastic what struck me about that interview is when uh, she said you know if the city of Memphis would have just rallied behind the sanitation workers maybe he wouldn't have been there in that moment and maybe he'd still be alive today 
and what would our world look like? And I yeah. never thought about that until that moment, yeah. right? And what the sanitation workers were asking for was not even that much money. Right? <laughs> so it just right. seems like a crazy fight um, for him to have had to be there for, truly. Mm-hmm. But uh, looking at where we are right now with teachers and that kind of thing, like, again, it's hard to feel like there's been a whole lot of progress, but um, we have to keep working. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> On that hopeful. <laughs> yes, note, we have to. We have to have hope, right? Yeah, because uh, we are going to keep yeah. working, right? So yeah, we are. So hope, that's that's where the hope is. That's the hope. Okay. So thank you for joining us today, everybody. Um, again, if you didn't listen to the live recording from our national conference, that is in your feed. Um, we've got some exciting episodes coming up. As always, hashtag Compact Nation Pod to share what you liked or didn't like or uh, what you'd like to see us do in the future. Um, or email us at podcast at compact.org and have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Season two of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe. All rights reserved. Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jameson, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us.